Welcome to Skull Sessions, the Viking Athletics podcast where strength meets smarts. I am your host, Eric Estiglione. It is October of 2022, and today we have a very special treat for you guys. Uh, we have a guest on the podcast, Dr. Charlie Cavo, who runs Pounds Weight Loss Center out of Connecticut, multiple locations. And we talk about a number of different topics, nutrition-related, their approach to helping their patients lose weight, kind of the interplay between MDs and their nutritional background, and uh, it's a great conversation that kind of spirals from there. Today I am also drinking uh, coffee since we are recording this in the morning, so I want to give another shout out to Purgatory Roasters. Uh, like I said in a previous episode, we are very fortunate that they have a location right up the road from the gym, and today I'm enjoying their New England blend which is my favorite. It's dark roast. If you haven't had a chance, stop by, check them out. You won't regret it. It's great coffee. Anyway, without further ado, we hope you enjoy the conversation between myself and Dr. Charlie Cavo. Here we go. And if you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself, you know, your background, both in fitness, medicine, and what you're doing now. Sure. So, I'm Charlie Cavo, and uh, I was a, um, and still am a board certified OBGYN, uh, but I changed my career from being really in the hospital setting and delivering uh, patients to being more in the preventative end and uh, was bari bariatric board. And so um, we started a, a practice uh, that I'm sure we can talk about a little bit uh, if you want. Um, Absolutely. A little bit more about my background. Got three boys. They are 18, 19, and well, actually 18, 20, and 21 now. And they are pretty much out of the house doing things in Colorado and Montana. One's left here in Avon. Um, got a wife who started a practice, and I'm employed by her now. So she's my boss, which is kind of cool. <laughs> and a uh, couple dogs that keep me entertained and busy. And I know Eric through the world of CrossFit, which I'm still very much into, although I don't really have a, a particular gym I go to. I just have my garage. So I'm old school. Yeah, nice, uh, nice garage, Jim. You got probably one of my favorite quotes of all time on the wall there. Louis Simmons, weak things break. I love seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Weak things break. True so that. It's a, it's a great setup. Yep. Uh, so what first got you interested in medicine? Uh, before going to medical school, my father was a physician. He was a ear, nose and throat guy. So I kind of grew up, um, being influenced by my father and, uh, you know, I just always had a passion for helping people and, um, just figured medicine was a great way to do it. Before I was in medicine, I was actually a high school teacher, uh, down wow. North Carolina. Um, and I enjoyed teaching and that sort of thing. So when, um, I decided I had enough of high school teaching because dealing with high schoolers is kind of tough, especially when you're uh, close in their age proximity. I decided medical school would be a good uh, a good way to go. So that's what I did. What'd you teach? I was a Spanish and biology teacher, coach soccer and coach tennis. It was a fun time. <laughs> Sounds busy. <laughs> uh, as far as obviously you're kind of still involved in the world of CrossFit, um, you mentioned coaching. What was your fitness background growing up? So I was a pretty, um, pretty passionate about soccer. Um, and 
played an awful lot of that at pretty high levels. And three ACLs later, I decided that I probably should stop playing soccer with, you know, some help from my wife, Michelle, saying that if I kept on playing, she would leave me. And uh, <laughs> um, so now I, I don't really play soccer anymore, which is fine. I'm too old for that anyways. And uh, I spend a lot of time mountain biking and um, skiing. I was about to say, I, I see your stuff on Facebook. You seem, you guys all seem very uh, active in the outdoors in addition yeah. to obviously in the gym. That's awesome. Yeah. Got to keep up with the kids. So they push me. As long as they don't push you too hard. I'm talking with uh, Ted Sherry lately. And I remember obviously his boys just went to Stanford on a running scholarship. And uh, I still remember a couple of years ago when he was lamenting the fact that he could no longer keep up with them for years it was i could i can keep beating them i can still beat them and then now they surpassed them so yeah ted and i played a played a bit of soccer together and our kids all kind of played on the same team and ted and i used to coach together and we were laughing about how we used to be able to run those guys ragged and man his kids are so fast now i i don't think i'd even see them leave the starting line those guys are quick yeah it's pretty crazy yeah yep uh, so let's talk about your practice now. What what caused you to switch and uh, what exactly is your business? What are you guys involved with at uh, over at Pounds? So I think what caused me to switch was um, it was a there's a story behind it. But I think that when you're in medicine, you really get a feeling that you're watching people get sicker rather than uh, healthier and your treatments that you can give patients really are just um, treating a lot of symptoms rather than the causes of the problems. And that just would kind of grind my gears after a while in the field. And you take a lot of patients through uh, surgeries and the risks are increased because of the state of the patient's health, which could have been better and perhaps could have um, avoided the need for surgical procedures anyways, or um, given certain medications. And so I just thought there would be a better way for me professionally to um, deliver healthcare rather than to continue treating the symptoms of um, metabolic uh, mayhem in people. And so um, the practice that we started, uh, my wife and me, was um, really geared towards metabolic rehabilitation, where patients who have uh, problems like diabetes or cholesterol issues, arthritis, you name it, basically there's so many problems that just stem from uh, un misunderstood, I should say, misunderstood metabolic um, problems. And so the practice that we started really helped um, focus on education about how patients became sick. And when you educate people in a way that they understand, they make better choices and become healthier. And so our practice is really focusing on that aspect of healthcare prevention. Okay. Uh, so obviously it's a massive focus on nutrition. Do you guys handle anything with exercise as well? Is that kind of go hand in hand or do you mostly target the nutrition side of things? Um, pretty much we target the nutritional aspect of things um, and leave the fitness uh, aspect alone. I, I like fitness a lot and I know a lot about it, but I think there are people like you that do a lot better and know a lot more about it than I do. So 
when our patients ask about like activities, um, we usually um, push them on to, to gyms and that sort of thing where they might come across a trainer that knows how to um, safely get them engaged. So we, we spend a lot more time in the world of nutrition and medicine and the interactions of food and macronutrients and the medications that patients are on um, and helping understand those as well as hormones and stuff like that. So, yeah. Then how much do you dive into the, the uh, education side of things? You just mentioned hormones. So when you're talking about, um, do you mostly talk about like digestive hormones or do you guys go way down the rabbit hole with clients depending on interest level and talking about how, you know, what you're eating can influence everything from testosterone to neurotransmitters to everything like that. How far do you guys go? Or is that really just in, based on the individual? Um, so I think that when we start with patients, so the patient that comes into our practice, um, will get a, a kind of a standard lab panel, which is looking at specific hormones that may be related to metabolic dysfunction. Um, and we'll start with those hormones first and addressing them, um, specifically targeting hormones like insulin, for example. So, so many people have something that's called insulin resistance, and that term gets thrown around pretty loosely without a real understanding as to what it is. And yeah, everybody when, loves their buzzwords. Yeah. Uh, right. You know that, right? Like I'm on a keto-ish diet is another one that, you know, oh, just yeah. kind of is, is a little bit, um, tossed around, but in any case, so yeah, hormones like insulin, uh, obviously is, is one that we focus an awful lot on just because it's a really powerful fat gaining growth hormone that, um, can be secreted, uh, in excess amounts in people that are, overshooting their carbohydrate threshold. And so in any case, through our lab panels, I guess is probably where the conversation first starts with regards to if we're going to be addressing hormonal problems, that's where um, the rubber meets the road with menopausal women or perimenopausal women. Um, you know, when they go off the cliff of estrogen progesterone production, um, you know, we have conversations and treatment modalities set up for them. Uh, Patients that are, you know, male gender who are overweight, they oftentimes have a level of testosterone dysfunction and inappropriate production, which inhibits their um, muscle mass, which um, can cause some problems. So the hormone, I guess, conversation, Eric, is, is really geared towards the individual and what we discover when we run our panels. Um, but yeah, and certainly, like you mentioned, there's um, ways in which nutritional changes and weight loss affects hormones when you talk about the body's set point and how fat cells can sort of um, determine whether or not a person is going to reach goal weights and how difficult it's going to be to stay in those goal weights that we get them to. That's awesome. I, uh, I suppose I should have started with, you mentioned obviously um, individualizing the approach. Uh, who is your target demographic? Do you have a specific type of client you're looking for, or are you guys pretty much working with anybody that has metabolic dysfunction? So we work pretty much with anybody. It doesn't have to be a person with metabolic dysfunction, um, although that is definitely a higher percentage of patients that we see. Um, but for you know, a person that 
I don't know. We have um, patients that get referred to us for infertility purposes. So a lot of the people from the um, from UConn Infertility Clinic come down to see us for uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. We have a partnership with Connecticut Women's Health, which is um, an OBGYN, it's the OBGYN organization in Connecticut, and uh, certainly um, patients that are experiencing weight problems associated with perimenopause and changes in their hormone status, we see them, and um, pregnancy patients we see. And then there's plenty of the uh, patients that come over from cardiologists and, and that sort of thing who are uh, struggling with controlling cholesterol, blood pressure issues, diabetics. There are about 300 physicians that refer into us and they refer in for everything under the sun these days, it seems like. Um, so there's not really one particular type of patient that we'll see. We see a lot of patients these days that are... Um, going in for joint replacement surgery or had had joint replacement surgery and um, the outcome of the surgical procedure is so much better if a person's metabolically healthier and a little bit lighter. And so a lot of the orthopods are sending us patients to handle that kind of aspect of their care. Awesome. So you have a very nice symbiotic relationship with these doctors then? Yeah. Oh no, we definitely do. Um, I think sure. that, yeah, I think that's been a really fortunate aspect of our practice is um, the collaborative, the collaborative nature that we have with the um, physicians in the community. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Been, yeah, I, I remember reading, uh, I think you had a post about a patient that I guess she had dropped a bunch of weight and kind of was now off a couple of blood pressure medications, which are, you know, awesome improvements by any metric, but then she went into her PC and he didn't focus on any of that and instead just said, you need to lose more weight or something like that. And, uh, I thought that was pretty telling. And, uh, one of the problems that we see is treating in isolation versus a more holistic approach and looking at where people have come from versus where they're still trying to get. Yeah, that's, that's really true. I, I think that's really insightful of how you may have interpreted that post because it is a big miss, I think, in the healthcare where, you know, patients are really struggling trying to find answers with regards to why they have abnormal weight gain or why they have chronic medical conditions when they feel as though they're eating really well. And there is just this permeating sort of blame and shame that goes into, um, you know, the pain point that patients are experiencing, which is their weight and trying to control it. And, um, you know, when a person approaches, uh, when a patient approaches a doctor and says, you know, um, I'm overweight and I'd like to have some ideas as to how to make my weight go down or they come into the office and they know they're overweight. I mean, it's not really uh, rocket science to see a person that's struggling with their weight. You know, I think that the advice that's given, which is exercise more and eat less is yeah. ridiculous. It's something that everybody's been told. And of course they've tried that and it doesn't work. And then I also think that when a person has successfully lost one pound, let alone 20 or 30, 50 or a hundred pounds, and they get told they need to lose more weight rather than congratulated on the success that they already have had. And I think that that's just problematic right now in medicine, you know? Yeah. So you guys, uh, can you walk us through what your typical approach then would be and how it's different from that? 
Yeah, so um, I guess first, uh, when a patient comes in, we understand that they've probably done everything. Like, let's just say that we're seeing a patient that's coming in for a weight problem. So a person that is experiencing a weight issue that they can't get their weight to go down and stay down, sustainable weight loss, you know? Um, and we'll take that kind of patient rather than some of the other um, sort of patients that we see, because I think that's the direction that you kind of want to go in. I mean, I'm open to anything, but yeah. I feel like that's for most people, probably the most relatable, you know, eat less, yeah. exercise more. Everybody's heard that. Yeah. Every, I'm sure most people, the vast majority of people at some point or another have attempted to lose weight. So yeah, yeah I think that's a great avatar to go with. Yep, totally. So getting a good accurate history and physical is really important for understanding a medical condition, which is abnormal weight gain and why a person is obese in the first place. And you and, and that has to start with um, a history of um, how long a person's been overweight, what they've tried, what they found successful, what they um, found is unsuccessful. That sort of stuff is all really important, as well as um, getting labs on a person. Uh, and we have a specific lab panel that we do. Uh, it's not anything magical with regards to what we're ordering. It's standard run-of-the-mill sort of labs that any um, provider can do. Um, and so having that lab information is really helpful. I think also in doing the history, um, getting a, a diet recall and um, helping a, a patient understand that when they say that they're eating well and not overeating, I believe 99.9% .9 of the patients that tell me that because very rarely is their, um, is their condition caused by overeating and under-exercising. So it's just always interesting how patients come in and they, I don't want to say are defensive about what they're eating as though I, I'll have a problem with it um, because I know um, from being in the field for as long as that we've been in, uh, patients are not overeating and yet they're having a problem with uh, their energy balance and they're storing too much of their energy rather than burning it. And it's our job to figure out why that uh, balance is happening. So in any case, uh, the history is very important. Um, we get a good food history for them. We start to understand the kind of tastes and textures and patterns of which they're eating. Um, we do a very good job. Uh, and when I say we, our practice is made up of providers like me and um, registered dietitians um, that patients will see. And, um, you know, we do a really good job understanding what their macronutrients are and what the balances look like. And when I say that, that's protein, carbs, and fats. Yeah. And um, trying to determine whether or not the balance that they're having with regards to those macronutrients um, would be beneficial with what we learn about them with their body composition and their labs. And um, when you put that picture together, um, you sort of are able to develop what sort of underlying abnormal physiological processes are going on that are disturbing a person's ability to um, access their fat and have metabolic flexibility. And um, they're eating their energy rather than um, using their energy. Um, so we can determine all that through history, through their medications and looking at what they're taking and also through the lab panels that we use. And then our practice starts to dig in on rearranging the macronutrients that they're having and is uh, understanding what habits 
they're um, doing that or what kind of habits they have that we can sort of work with um, to make the whole thing sustainable. Because that's really the important thing, I think, is sustainability of weight loss. Having somebody lose weight is pretty easy. You know, you, oh, just, yeah. have, you just have to cut calories. That's probably the most powerful way to lose weight. Um, yeah, having uh, wrestled for years, I can tell you <laughs> that's easy. Yep. Being able yeah. to function in that kind of state is certainly not. And that's the problem, right? I mean, yes. so it's not sustainable. So I think that's a huge problem that we have is sustainable weight loss and, um, you know, being mindful about your choices over, you know, years and not just playing the short six week challenge where you're going to dump 20 pounds or something like that, because you really need to find something that's sustainable for your health, you know? So when you're prescribing this for your patients, uh, do you have them track their macros? Do you have them, do you focus on habits first? What's the kind of order that you, that you would go in, or is that largely dependent on the individual and what they've done previously? Totally dependent on the individual and what they've done previously. I, I will say that, you know, if you're, it, anybody that is looking to lose weight um, and thinks it can be done and sustained without um, keeping some sort of a journal is just walking over dollars without picking them up. Because um, the way in which people recall their diet um, is so flawed. If you just try doing a, a recall of what somebody ate yesterday versus three days ago versus six days ago, they're going to be missing about 92% of the foods that they ate. And so having a journal about what you're eating is such an important step. It's the pain point and it's uncomfortable, but you don't get results without being a little bit uncomfortable in whatever space it is that you're trying to see some results. So a journal for us is always very helpful, pen to paper. As far as counting macros go or counting carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, or counting calories, that's really up to our team to do that. So we don't want patients to necessarily do that. That's kind of like getting into a diet mentality. Right. And we don't, we don't really want that. Um, but we want to be able to see it so we can take care of the um, execution of the counts and that sort of thing. It's just important to know what people are eating. It's important to see what times they're eating and um, what foods they're eating. So approaching each patient with a journal, you know, and, and, and trying to get them to journal is really important. Now, some people won't do that. And so you're left with the recall, which is fine, too. I mean, we can work with that. But man, it really helps to have a journal. Yeah, I've I found that in our experience as well, that uh, number one, people are way off when they start tracking and it shows them how far off they are. And then uh, number two, there's a little bit of self-correction in there anyway, because they there is that shame and embarrassment like, oh, shit, I don't want to show them what I was doing. And so they cut it out of their diet to begin with. But you touched on a great point. Uh trying to avoid that diet mentality. So a food journal is one thing. Do you have them include portion sizes or how do you guys then determine what their kind of macronutrient intake is if they're not weighing and measuring foods or are they? Oh God, no, I can't stand it when people are weighing and measuring their foods. We, that's just, this just something that's not sustainable. Now, 
some people have done it for so long that it's kind of the way they're going to approach the kitchen and what they're going to eat. And, right. and that's fine. If we can get them eventually, you know, away from that, it's really liberating, I think, with regards to how they approach food and the relationship they have. But um, I think that when it comes to understanding the macronutrients, let's just take, for example, proteins and the information about how much protein people are supposed to be having and not having and carbs and fats. I mean, it seems to be changing and evolving. I mean, certainly when we started this 10 years ago, you know, we were thinking one thing, but with, you know, new stuff that's coming out, we certainly are moving in different directions. So proteins, for example, that's something that's been changing and people struggle to understand what the portion sizes are and how much they should be eating. We usually teach people how to eyeball it. So okay. we'll say that, you know, look, if you're having um, a chicken breast that is about the size of your palm and the thickness of your palm, that's going to be roughly 30 grams of protein that you're going to be having. Um, if you're into shakes, those are kind of easier to, um, to measure because you can just see on the container, two scoops is going to give you 30 grams of protein and you're good to go. When you look at cheeses, you can do the amount of grams by slice. Um, so I think that just through our education, we can help people sort of start to eyeball how much protein they're having in the course of a meal or a day. And that's kind of how we approach things when it comes to learning how to look at nutritional labels. People really focus on sugars that are on the nutritional label labels. Yeah. Um, not appropriate if we're trying to take down carbohydrates to reduce the sugar level in their blood. It's not the sugar on the label, it's the carbohydrates. And then, you know, it's a wild west out there on the internet with regards, should you be subtracting fiber or adding fiber? What should you be doing about that? And so, you know, we kind of take that whole mystery out also. I don't, I don't really think that matters. You don't have to get into the, to the real nuances of one gram versus four grams. That's not going to be the, the, the game changer there. Yeah. Um, and then you got sugar alcohols out there now, which are, uh, yeah. Whole nother mess. Yeah. Yeah. Go down that rabbit hole for sure. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So no, we don't like the scales um, and uh, portion sizes. We try to get patients to eyeball them as best we can. And again, it's individualized. I mean, there's certainly people that are um, they've got some sort of appetite dysregulation and um, those kind of people might be able to really overeat and you got to be careful about that. And they um, have a hard time sort of estimating their portion sizes. But most of the people that we see with a little bit of education get their head around like how much protein they're having on their plate and what an appropriate amount is. Awesome. Yep. That's kind of in line with what we try to teach as well is, you know, sure, it's uh, to us, weighing and measuring can be a useful tool so that you get a better idea of what you're eating but certainly especially we see it with our clients these are people that are super gung-ho about health and fitness and it's easy especially with the crossfit mentality to take things to the extreme and then you get people starting to obsess over weighing every little thing and that's its own disorder that you're running into there uh easy to turn anything into an addiction i guess so yeah, that is one of the biggest struggles I think people have is how do you move away from that and get to a point where you're still paying attention to what you're eating without relying on that scale. So that's yeah. awesome to hear. 
I mean, I think one of the things also, and I don't know if you guys think about this at all, um, but maybe you do with um, your clients, but, you know, so many people that we see are, they've been living in this all or none sort of world of nutrition. And, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, they, they think, oh, I can't have a cupcake or um, if I do have a cupcake, I just blew it. And so now the next day, week and month is going to just be more of the same of just a disaster of what they're eating. Um, and we do a lot with our patients um, in helping them understand that there's a, there's kind of like an ebb and flow to, to nutrition, just like there is to training. You know, I mean, if you're training for an Ironman, you can't train all year long, you would die. Um, as you go through the stages of preparation, you might start to increase your hours on the road or in the water um, and getting ready for a race. But after the race is over, you certainly won't be spending the exact same amount of time training as you did leading up to the race. And when it comes to like food, um, I think the same thing. If there's a straightaway without any, um, you know, birthdays or anniversaries or, or holidays, then you might as well, you know, hit the hammer and get the job done when it comes to putting the right stuff on the plate. And if there is a uh, curve in the road where there's a meal that, you know, is important for you to uh, celebrate with family and friends or what have you, enjoy that moment. And don't be afraid not to be training for that one meal. Go ahead and dig in. Just as long as you don't turn that digging into like a, a losing streak where one day becomes another day, becomes another day, becomes another day. It would be kind of like, you know, you didn't go to the gym on Monday, so you might as well not go Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That would be crazy. You know, you can't just throw the baby out with bathwater when you mess up. You just get back at it. So I think that learning of how to flow and go versus how to ebb is really important when you talk about sustainability of um, nutritional changes that lead to better health, you know? So we do a lot of training with that with patients or treating, I guess. So absolutely. The psychology behind it is probably the biggest piece that people don't think about. You know, you can really simplify things down, you know, the, the science of it and here, here's what you need to eat. But the bigger question is how do we get them to do that and how do we ensure compliance? So what kind of strategies do you then would you give people in order to help them navigate those curves as they come along without the guilt and without the, how do you, how do you break that all or nothing mindset? Um, <clears throat> a lot of times it um, will come down to just simple mathematics. I mean, if a person, if a new patient comes in and on average, you know, they're eating, let's say 13 or 14 times a day. That's what the average person will do is eat that many times, which is crazy. But after you sort of point that out to them and maybe they start to eat a total of four to six times a day. And I'm not one that um, likes each small multiple meals. I'm just being practical. Yeah. Um, so if somebody's, let's just say eating anywhere between three to six times in the course of the day, you know, you look at the entire week and they're going to maybe have, let's say on average 30 episodes where they're going to eat in the course of the week. If one or two of those episodes are done at Applebee's or where have you, that's not going to be really problem. That's not going to create problems in, in the world of their health. Um, and so I think that 
from a being logical about the thought process with what happens if you eat something that you shouldn't have in the grand scheme of things it's not going to be a big deal if it's only done a few times during the course of a week if it's done one sitting after another um then that could be a problem with regards to a person meeting their goals I also think that a lot of that um, all or none mentality is a habit that takes a lot to undo. And one of the things that our practice really focuses on is approaching the problem as a practice and not as a program. I think people get into this spirit of a program with once they reach their goal, say 30 pounds of weight loss, they no longer have a problem. No, they still have a very big problem. And that's why 30 pound losers also also become the 30 pound regainers unless they have some sort of follow up. And so we look at um, patients who come to see us for uh, weight loss, just like we look at somebody with a blood pressure, I can give you a medicine to treat your blood pressure, it's pretty easy to do. But once your blood pressure is under control, there's no way I'm not going to see you ever again. I'm going to put a, an appointment on the books every four to six months to make sure that you're compliant with the medicines, you're not having side effects, there haven't been any changes in, uh, in what your blood pressure is doing, and so on and so forth. And the same thing happens with our patients as far as accountability goes and uh, sustainability. We want to see the patients even once they're successful with regards to meeting their goals for their health. Um, and it's a long-term thing. I mean, we've got patients that have been in the practice for nine years now. They know how to eat. They know their portions. They know their sizes. I think they just appreciate seeing, seeing themselves and their body composition, making sure that it, everything is still stable and accurate. We don't need to make any changes and they haven't taken any steps backwards. So I think through time and repetition of a message, people lose that all or none mentality and find a much better balance and relationship with food and, and how to use it for both their health as well as celebration. I mean, it's, it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky balance to find. So as with everything, practice and repetition. Yep, absolutely. That awesome. is, that is the standard. As far as I'm aware, the only, uh, quick solution that may or may not be lasting would be liposuction, in which case I know a great plastic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. That's yeah. one way to make fat go away is cut it out. Yeah. Um, so circling back, you said you have a great relationship with a lot of physicians. And uh, I brought up that one post. And obviously, you and I have had a conversation about my former primary care physician and uh, I ran into an issue where he did not understand the part of the population that I represented because at the time I was a competitive weightlifter. I was actually number two in the state of Connecticut and we were arguing over uh, protein intake. And, um, you know, he was still harping on, well, number one, it was a very outdated study. And number two, it was only done in mice and they couldn't actually replicate it in humans, <laughs> at which point I was like, then what the hell is the point of the study? Um, do you ever run into that with MDs giving nutrition advice? I mean, obviously that's been a concern of a lot of people in the nutrition world is, well, as an MD, what kind of nutrition training did you have in medical school? And is there any really pressure to keep up on it? Or is that something that you had to take on yourself once you guys went into 
your own practice that focused on nutrition? Yeah. Great questions. Thanks for asking them. The degree of education that physicians get in medical school is absolutely embarrassing. And so for a physician to come out into um, and start, you know, offering nutritional advice without doing a whole lot of research on the back end and relying only on their medical school training would just be inappropriate. Um, we get less than 10 hours of dedicated teaching and nutrition in uh, medical school. And that's across the boards. We just did a presentation for a group about this. Um, and, and so, you know, there's just absolutely no way you can give advice to somebody based on 10 hours of treatment or 10 hours of training that you get in medical school and then even less in residency. So nope, doctors don't know what they should know about nutrition unless they've done research on the um, independently. And like I was saying, the research just changes so much uh, that you really have to stay sharp and um, on your toes with regards to what is out there. It's a wild west. And the other thing that's really um, harmful, I think, with regards to some of the advice that we've seen given is how your own personal views with regards to what's right about nutrition, wrong about nutrition, they, they just enter the fray. And that is, you know, you just, you have to leave your own personal sort of thoughts about nutrition or beliefs about, you know, whether or not it's appropriate to eat meat versus be a vegetarian. You have to just shelf your own personal thoughts and, and, um, and look at the patient as, you know, as a patient basically and offer them the best advice. Um, so, as far as our collaboration goes with physicians in uh, in the area, um, yeah, we initially, I guess, when we started Pounds, I think a lot of uh, my colleagues thought it was a little bit crazy to be leaving a lucrative practice where I was partner to um, to go on this, uh, you know, startup kind of journey, but. Um, as they saw what we were doing, uh, they became more confident that the advice that we we're giving patients was uh, good advice and it was um, not taking advantage of people in any way, shape or form using grocery store foods and sustainable um, ways to purchase food and stuff like that at grocery stores, I think was something that was helpful. So fast forward now, I think that, yeah, there's still plenty of doctors out there um, that refer into us that um, would acknowledge that their, um, their understanding of nutrition is flawed. Um, and they don't have, I guess, um, I don't know, Eric, I think, I think that they're much more willing to, um, just let us take over, um, you know, nutritional sort of advice for their patients without giving us a whole lot of pushback. Um, so I think that, I think the tides are turning a little bit and we probably have about at any given time in the practice, we'll have several physicians um, who are patients of ours that are going through the practice also. Um, and I think that speaks volumes also to the fact that, you know, they're willing to acknowledge that they need help and maybe aren't all that um, well-versed in nutritional medicine because they're patients. That's awesome. So there's there's definitely been a shift in the last few years where this is now regarded as sort of a separate practice that's worthwhile as opposed to, oh, they're just, 
you know, it's witch doctory or whatever you want to call it. You know? Yeah, that's exactly true. And, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's the fine line of the space that we chose to get ourselves into was, you know, somewhere wedged in between real medicine and quackery. And I think we've done a good job of proving that this is real medicine. And we get people off of insulin for diabetics, or when we get people off of their blood pressure medicines or help somebody avoid a surgery um, or have a better outcome, you can't help but say, okay, that's not quackery. That's actually being a doctor. Um, and then going back to what you'd asked about with, you know, the advice that you're getting about protein and, and, and what people are thinking is accurate. I think that a lot of doctors probably rely on what they read on the internet. Um, yeah. Like, the RDA recommendations on protein is just absolutely atrocious. I mean, they're, they're looking at such a low amount of protein to suggest to a person to take. It doesn't even scratch the surface about what a person actually needs, especially a person that's going into weightlifting and is breaking down more muscle than, than you could imagine. And, and when you get into the numbers that we get into with regards to say protein recommendations for uh, an athlete like you, it's going to make any physician kind of excited because in medical school, they got taught that protein might knock off a kidney. Right. Um, and, you know, that just is simply not true. Uh, if you know what you're doing uh, in, in medical nutrition, then you can absolutely be very supportive and spot on with regards to the recommendations that you can give a person. So, yeah. yeah. And and to be fair, in that instance, I I don't think he understood what a competitive weightlifter was. Uh, you know, I was trying to hammer that in, and it was it's like, no, I'm not just hanging out at the gym using machines. I'm like, you ever watch the Olympics? I'm slinging heavy weight overhead training like two hours a day, five days a week. I'm I'm under constant heavy loads here. This is not just going to the gym. Yeah, and uh, I think that nuance was lost on him, and he, you know. I don't even know if he's still in practice at this point. I mean, this was back in what, 2017, 2018. And uh, he was a nephrologist to begin with. So yes, very, very excited about protein and kidney function and all yeah. that. So yeah. And it's funny because people like, you know, I mean, everybody has such a, an emotional sort of like feeling about nutrition and what they know and, and what they want to you know, what they feel they know, they're professionals at what they know, because they're practicing nutrition every single day. And so they must be good at it. I mean, you can't not practice nutrition every day, everybody eats, right? And so because you eat, you must be an expert, I think, and because you're an expert, then what you say must be right. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, a headstrong person, whether it's a physician or a trainer, or just your run of the mill, you know, educator, um, could, unintentionally give flawed advice. Uh, and that's sometimes what we're up against in our practice. Unfortunately, we definitely come across that. Yeah, we see it too. You know, uh, for, if you look back in the early days of CrossFit, they were pushing, uh, the zone diet. That was the official diet, which in terms of weighing and measuring was just a pain in the ass with everything being in blocks. Uh, but in terms of macronutrient balance, it was pretty balanced. It was 40% carbohydrates, 30% fat, 30% protein. They, and then you would get in and kind of tweak an individual's uh, percentages based on their needs, whether they were losing weight, whether they needed to gain weight. Uh, and then 
you know, Rob Wolf got involved and uh, I think people misconstrued what he was doing. Obviously, he's a massive paleo advocate now, kind of keto and paleo. And, um, you know, his whole point in the early days of CrossFit, which actually wound up leading to him getting fired from CrossFit, was that it's not sustainable for most people to weigh and measure their foods. And if you try to throw measuring cups and scales at them, they're going to turn and run. So he wanted to focus on food quality first. And, you know, that would take care of a lot of the caloric balance right there just by eating more nutritionally dense food. Um, and then now we see keto has come around again, and uh, that's hugely popular. And so we've dealt with that in the gym, too. And people experimenting with keto and it's hard to keep your own biases out sometimes, but, you know, again, you have to look at the individual and what they're trying to accomplish and whether or not that's a good strategy for them. So, yeah, I'll say this about keto just because it's important. I think it's important um, to get the message across since it's such a misunderstood, understood sort of way in which to approach food. I think that uh, people that are going to do a ketogenic diet um, are leaning into it for the most part because they think they're going to lose weight. And the reason they think they're going to lose weight is because somewhere along the lines, they came to understand that if they're making ketones and using it for fuel, those, those ketones came from fat cells. And if the ketones are present, then the fat cell must be giving up fat and therefore they must be losing weight. I think it's kind of like how people approach a keto diet. Oh, I'm going to do keto because that means if I have keto, then I must be burning fat. That's the, that's the way key, that's the way ketones get there. But I think what people miss out on is how awesome our bodies are at recycling everything and making sure the reservoirs stay totally filled up. So just like you could be burning fat in the form of ketone bodies and be on a ketogenic plan, you have no idea how quickly you're regenerating and, and replacing the fat that you've gone and burned for ketones. So you could very easily be on a ketogenic diet, gaining weight as your body's making fat back up that it's gone and burned. And I think that's where people get really agitated when they are doing a ketogenic diet and gaining weight. Because they think if they're doing a ketogenic diet, they should be losing weight. And that can't be further from the truth. Right. And the other thing that just is always bothersome is um, people saying that they're doing a ketoish diet. You can't keto. do you can't can't do a ketoish diet, you know? Right. And there are different devices that we use in our practice. If we're gonna have a reason to do a ketogenic diet, that we'd encourage a patient to use so we can kind of make adjustments along the way because it's a pretty specific macronutrient composition that you have to be aware of and, and it's easy to get out of it it's so i was just going to say it's so hard to get into it and then once you're there and you come out of a ketogenic diet it's sometimes very challenging to get a person back into it we don't when we don't really utilize it very frequently there are certain patients that it's advantageous to do, but it's very individualized. But right. yeah, I think for just anybody listening to this, you know, recording should just step back. If you're thinking that a keto diet is the best diet for you, you might want to think twice about that and, and, and recheck your facts. I also think for most people, you know, the keto ish again, it's just a low carb diet. 
and it's you're not actually in ketosis and what i keep trying to push at least for the clientele that we tend to work with is you're doing this high intensity exercise you need the carbohydrates that is your primary fuel source for what we're doing and if you're really serious about trying to lose weight then we have to look at portion control and you can get away with being on keto, but, uh, the best example I ever heard, uh, or best analogy I ever heard is for the type of exercise that we're doing. If you're following a ketogenic diet, it's like putting a lawnmower engine in a Ferrari. Sure. You can get it to run, but it's not going to run well. Yeah. It's not going to run fast. Yep. Totally. So, Uh, yeah. So that's, that's an important kind of point, I think. And, and certainly, um, I find that there's not, it's very infrequent that a person comes into our office that our first step is to say, let's reduce carbohydrates. It might be one of our steps, but very infrequently is a person coming in with the right amount of protein that they should be eating. Right. And th- it's, it's very easy to cut carbohydrates. It's very challenging to increase protein. And that takes a lot of work. And it's so important because, like you know, in CrossFit, if you don't have protein, you're not giving the body scaffolding to build muscle and maintain muscle. And that is the most important organ as we get older is muscle. You got to have it. Um, if you don't, you're just getting in line for, you know, one of the top killers, a fall that's going to break a bone and that's going to be it. And so the protein becomes such an easy thing to add to a diet. And so a lot of times when people approach dieting, they're thinking about what they need to remove. We don't really function that way. We don't want to work in a state of deprivation. We want to work in a state of, hey, I want to give you something. I want to give you protein. And if we give people the right amount of protein, um, a lot of times the other things that we want to remove from the diet just go along for the ride because they don't have the capacity in their appetite to continue eating certain things that might've been detrimental because we're pushing so much more of another macronutrient into them. And I think that that's a helpful sort of hint for a person approaching a diet is, you know, rather than look at the the idea of dieting behind deprivation, look at it as far as like, what more do you need? Because so many times the person that's trying to lose weight is actually malnourished. And if you get their nourishment right, they're no longer malnourished and the weight loss will just go along for the ride. So I think that that's a really important way to to reframe just weight loss and dieting in general, because um, it's it's a healthier way of of a sustainable approach, I think. That was, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the nutrition challenges either, but for us, it's a great crash course in helping people understand that maybe they're not eating as much as they should. And that was when we used to run them, that was always one of the most common points of feedback was, Oh my God, this is so much protein. And, you know, me personally, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm like, maybe I am overdoing it a little bit on the protein and should cut back on that. Uh, But I've never had that problem of getting enough. (laughs) Yeah. But it's definitely a, uh, a common issue yep. after, after that. So that would probably be then the most common thing you see. And that's what I've seen as well as most people do not eat enough protein. Uh, what would the next 
problem be the number two that you see most common in people's diets when we're talking about malnourishment yeah so i think everybody is appreciating carbohydrates for maybe being problematic but i think again what people are missing the boat on is personal threshold for carbohydrate consumption so there are certain people that will look at pizza and gain five pounds and other people that can eat an entire pizza and not gain a single pound and what's going on there is one person has a different rate in which they can dispose of glucose in their blood versus another person and that rate of glucose removal from the blood is what will determine how long a hormone like insulin is going to stay in the blood and so I think um, the next nutritional problem that we see is a misunderstanding of carbohydrate threshold that a person can tolerate. So it is very challenging for anybody to say, I can't, or for somebody to execute a plan where they can't eat carbohydrates. Like that's, that, that is, and that's kind of the space that people are getting to, oh, I know carbohydrates are terrible. I shouldn't eat them. No, that's not true. Right. You, you should eat carbohydrates. They're okay. It's just like, you know, drinking water, too much of it is going to hurt you. And um, everybody's got their own number with regards to what they can tolerate. And so I think the second issue that we deal with in nutrition is helping people understand where their carbohydrate threshold might be. So if I'm going to push protein first and get their protein levels to be at a at an amount, a gram amount of what their body needs, which is a lot more than what anybody ever thinks they need, um, the next step is going to be looking at how much carbohydrate intake are they having at a gram level and start backing that out so you can find a, a, a better energy balance. I mean, energy balances, like when we say that we're talking calories, they are important when you talk about weight loss. I mean, you can't not disregard uh, a caloric intake because working in a, in a calorie deficit certainly facilitates weight loss as long as your macronutrients are supporting your muscle mass. So as with most things, then carbs are not bad. The, uh, the poison is in the dose. Exactly. I love that line. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Well, I realized we never really, uh, mentioned your practice or how to get in contact with you, um, other than what you guys do. So let's give a, uh, a plug to your business before we finish up. Uh, cool. what is the name of your business? So our practice is called Pounds Medical Weight Loss Transformation. It's a mouthful, but that's the name of it. And um, it accepts all insurances. So um, a lot of the uh, weight loss groups that are out there kind of cash businesses, that is not what we do. So we'll take Medicaid, Medicare, all the Blue Cross, every insurance that's out there we basically are contracted with. And um, we run all of the um, patients that we see. We we do it all through insurance-based um, uh, charges. And you can find us in West Hartford, in Southington, and in Glastonbury. Those are the three locations that we've got. Awesome. Yep. Well, thanks for taking the time. And uh, we'll make sure that we're, uh, we're referring out. Sounds like you guys are doing great work and uh, happy to refer people to you, if they, especially if they need the help. 
Hey, thanks a lot. Maybe sometime sooner or later I'll make it back to your gym and <laughs> teach me teach me how to do a snatch again. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Hey, good talking to you. Likewise. All right. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye.